Good morning and welcome again. We appreciate so much you being here today. Thank you to Jared for filling in on, really on short notice. We hate that Brother Billy's not here today and hope and pray that he feels better very soon. But uh, you know, Jared is a multi-talented guy. And so I'm envious that he has the ability to lead singing and I don't even have the ability to sing in the pew, much less stand up here and lead. But we appreciate him leading today and thank you for being here. We are looking in our lesson text today at Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And we're going to be talking about the theme, God's Word Cannot Be Bound. And we're going to be looking at Paul and Silas and their efforts in the city of Philippi and the great results that resulted, really the great results that came about because of their imprisonment. And so we're going to be looking at that in just a moment or two. Now, as we look at Acts chapter 16 and consider the topic today, I would submit to you that there are a lot of people in the world today that in their mind, if you can imprison the messenger, then you can in some way imprison the message. Acts chapter 16 tells us that's not necessarily the case. You remember the Apostle Paul when he wrote to Timothy in his second letter, talked about how he suffered trouble even as an evildoer to the point of chains. But then he said, but the Word of God is not chained. And so whenever I read about the Apostle Paul, what I see is here is an individual that no matter where he was, he used the opportunities before him to share the gospel of Christ. So I want us to look at Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at the background to everything that takes place as recorded by Luke here. But I want to begin by first and foremost talking about their pain in prison. Now I'm talking about Paul and Silas specifically here. But you remember Paul had received what typically we refer to as the Macedonian call where he saw in a vision a man pleading with him to come and to help them. And so the Apostle Paul made his way to the city of Philippi. And while in that city, he and Silas and his co-laborers, they came in contact with a lady by the name of Lydia. And the Bible tells us that through their efforts, she was converted to the cause of Christ. Now, pick up with me down in verse 16, because in verse 16... Paul and those with him, they were on their way to prayer. And they ran into a young lady who was a slave. Matter of fact, the text says she was a slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination. And she brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. And this girl followed, followed Paul and us. And here's what she said. These men are the servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to us the way of salvation. And the Bible says in verse 18, This she did for many days. And Paul, being greatly annoyed, turned and said to the, to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. So not only was she a fortune teller, but she was possessed by a demon. And the text says that Paul cast that demon out. 
But look at verse 19, if you would. In verse 19, the Bible says, When her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them to the marketplace to the authorities, and then they made this charge. These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. Now, you well know that Paul and Silas were not Jews, but rather they were Christians. Paul had been a Jew, but he had obeyed the gospel of Christ. And so they said, they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Now look at verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them. The magistrates tore off their clothes, commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now you remember when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, when he itemized the many perils and difficulties that he faced in his ministry. He said three times he had been beaten with rods. Some have supposed that the rod, the wooden instrument that was used to afflict Paul and Silas, was made from elm. But nonetheless, the Bible says, when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them safely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, imagine if you can, Paul and Silas, they've been preaching and teaching the gospel. They've had tremendous success. And they have had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people, people throughout their missionary endeavors. In Philippi, they've already converted a lady by the name of Lydia and her household. And now, here they are, and they're met with resistance because they had cast a demon out of a girl that was making a lot of money for her masters. You know, whenever you, whenever you create, well, let me just back up and say it like this. Whenever you affect a man's pocketbook, then you're creating trouble, aren't you? And that was the case here. They recognized that their hope for profit through her fortune-telling was now gone. And so they became irate. And Paul and Silas, they suffered immensely because of these magistrates. Now, I want to turn now and think for a moment or two about their praise in prison. In verse 25, the Bible tells us at midnight. Now, Paul and Silas, they're in prison. They've had many stripes laid upon their backs. I can imagine, in my mind, the depth of pain that they're experiencing. They're hurting. Their wounds are untreated. And here they are at midnight in the inner dungeon in probably a dark, dingy prison cell and what are they doing? The Bible says they're praying and singing praises to God. So first and foremost, these men are praying to Jehovah God. Why would they pray? Well, when you look at the life of Paul, didn't he have a lot to say about prayer? And didn't he come to understand that prayer is a tremendous privilege afforded the disciples of Christ? For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul would say, pray without ceasing. When the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, 
he would say, continue steadfastly in prayer, watching therein with thanksgiving. Paul practiced what he preached. And Paul recognized that prayer is a tremendous blessing. I can't help but think about what Peter wrote. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. And so here they are in prison. And they're praying to Almighty God, the one that they served, the one that they sought to enlighten others about. And so they're praying to God. And then what about the peace that is derived through prayer? Now you remember Paul would later write to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6, Paul said, In nothing be anxious, but in everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And the idea is that there is like a senatorial guard, standing watch over our heart, affording us peace in God. And so these guys are praying to Jehovah God. The benefits and the blessings of their prayers, the peace of God. And you and I today, we have that same peace, don't we? Now what about their praise? The Bible says they were singing praise to Almighty God. Now there are a lot of folks in the world today, many of us, if we were in a similar predicament. We might be singing, but we wouldn't be singing praise to God. We might be singing the blues, so to speak. Well, that wasn't the case with Paul nor Silas. But they are praising Almighty. Why do you think they praise God? They're in a difficult situation. They've been beaten with rods. They're hurting. They're suffering. They may have been hungry. They might have been thirsty. Who knows? Separated from people that they love. And yet, here they are singing praise to Almighty God. I think first and foremost, it reminds us, praise to God reminds us of our blessings in Christ, doesn't it? Despite the fact that Paul and Silas were in prison, they were still blessed immeasurably by Jehovah God. They enjoyed physical blessings, mental blessings, most of all, spiritual blessings. No matter what's going on in the world around us, no matter how bad life might seem to be, we can still rejoice, we can still praise God because of all the blessings we enjoy. Do you remember what Paul said, Ephesians 1:3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. We're blessed. I think it's interesting that when Paul wrote, to the church at Philippi, he was again imprisoned. The time, about A.D. 61-62. And Paul writes to those people, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say, Rejoice! Paul was a blessed man. Silas was blessed. So they could thank God. And then, I think their praise was a reflection of their boldness for Christ. Now back up again and look at what the text says. You remember this slave girl that was demon-possessed? She said, these men are the servants of the Most High God, and they bring the way of salvation to us. So who are they suffering for? 
They're suffering for the cause of Christ, aren't they? And yet you can just imagine a lot of folks in the world today, if they, like Paul and Silas, were imprisoned and they were suffering for their faith, wouldn't it be easy to just step back and say, you know what, we really don't need to cause a lot of waves here. I mean, the best thing we can do is try to get out, get out of town. Get out of prison, get out of town. Not so with Paul and Silas. Here they are praising Almighty God. And they're doing so with great boldness. The text says the prisoners were listening to them. And you know, we do a lot of teaching through our singing, don't we? Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Is it possible that they were teaching as they sang in prison? I think the case could be made that they were. Now, there's a third thing I want you to see in our study. And that is, note if you would, their profit or profitability from being imprisoned. Now, note if you would, Verse 26, the text says, Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately, the Bible says, the prison doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, and was about to kill himself. In the minds of the Romans, suicide was not frowned upon, but rather many looked upon those who would commit suicide as people of honor or dignity. Why would it have been the case that this man, following the earthquake, was ready to take his life? I think because his fear was these guys have escaped. And if they had escaped from prison, then ultimately he would be held responsible. He'd be punished for it. And so he's ready to take his life. And here's what Paul said, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And the Bible says that the prison guard called for light, ran in, and fell down trembling before them. Scared to death, wasn't he? And interestingly, he asked this question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is a profound question, isn't it? You know, there are a lot of people in our world today, they have questions about many, many things. But is there a more profound question than what must I do to be saved? This was a profound question, and it was also a personal question. Because he, knew, he wanted to know what he needed to do to be saved. And so there is this inquiry. He raises the question, what do I need to do ultimately to be right with Almighty God? I mean, the earthquake, that was a supernatural event, wasn't it? The loosening of the chains, the prison doors being opened. So here are Paul and Silas, they're in a prison cell, and now they have the opportunity to do what? To share the gospel. So this man raises the question, let me tell you what, immediately... They respond by saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Not just you, but also your household, your family. So now we have divine instruction. 
One of the great things about the Scripture, it is always consistent. And one of, one of the important principles set forth in the New Testament is that Christianity is a religion that must be taught. Do you remember what Jesus said, John chapter 6? It's written in the prophets, They shall all be taught by God. Every man therefore that hath heard and learned of the Father comes unto me. Wasn't it Jesus who said, Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. So in order to become a child of God, people have to be taught, don't they? Now let me just pause here and ask this question. Who can be saved? Well, the Bible tells us God's desire is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. God's intent is to save the humanity through the finished work of Christ. Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, listen to him, to all men. So God wants all to be saved. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says Jesus tasted death for every man. So God's interested in all people. He was interested in this Roman guard and his family members. So what Paul and Silas have to do, they have to instruct this man and his family. So when the response was, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, there had to be a starting point. They've got to lay a foundation, don't they? In this text, Paul and Silas, according to Luke, and Luke is the inspired historian, Luke said, look if you would at verse 32, you might want to just underline this. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Now, they had already said you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it stand to reason that in laying a foundation, they had, to, they had to talk about the deity of Christ, the nature of Christ, the purpose of Christ, the mission of Christ? Didn't they have to go back and talk about all the things that the prophets had foretold about the coming of Christ? That Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and that it is only through Him that people can be saved. Didn't Jesus say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? No man comes unto the Father but by me. You remember back in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter and John, when they acknowledged to the Sanhedrin council, neither is there salvation in any other. This man was a heathen. He was a pagan. He needed someone to believe in. That someone was Christ. And so what Paul and Silas had to do was to educate him about the Christ and the fact that Jesus was God's answer to sin. I have no doubt that this man had to be informed about the problem of sin in his life. Because Paul said, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So here's a man who is spiritually destitute. He needs God. He needs Christ in his life. So what about Jesus? Well, Peter said that Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, being put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit. Peter would also say that Jesus bore our sins in His body 
on the cross. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, he said, We've been redeemed, not by corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Jesus. So he's got a lot of teaching to do. And he's laying a foundation. And I would imagine that in the course of his conversation, he talked about the church and the importance of the church. Now here's a question. The first question, who can be saved? The second question, who are the saved? Now there are a lot of people in the world today, if you ask them, what do you need to do to become a child of God? What will they tell you? Most folks would say, well, number one, you need to accept Jesus as your Savior. In no way would I ever diminish the importance of Christ. Our faith has to be in Him. The Lord Jesus Himself said, except you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. So we've got to have faith in Christ. Faith in the resurrected Christ. That faith leads to repentance. On Pentecost Day when the church began, and those people on that occasion cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? The response of Peter, and Peter, by the way, had the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 16, verse 19. And Peter said, Number one, you need to repent. They already believed in the Lord Jesus. This man needed someone to believe in. He needed to be schooled, educated, instructed in the way of Almighty God. He needed to be instructed about the one true living God and His Son. Now the world says you accept the Lord Jesus and then you say the sinner's prayer and you become a child of God. But what does the Bible say? It's not about what the world says, it's about what the Word says, right? Interestingly, there was an, an article that appeared in the newspaper this past week had to do with the Catholic Church. And one of the priests in the Catholic Church had been christening infants and because when he performed this ceremony because he used the word we instead of I the Catholic, the Catholic Church concluded that all those baptisms were invalid now listen when I read that article there are a number of problems number one Infants do not need to be baptized. Why? What sin does an infant have? The Bible says, The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father inherit or bear the iniquity of the Son. In, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, the prophet said, The soul that sins, it shall surely die. He shall surely die. Sin is defined as the transgression of the law. So, number one, Infants are born into this world pure. They're not born sinners. What sin has a baby committed? Not a single one. Number two, when we talk about baptism, it is for believers. A nine-month-old baby does not have the mental capacity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a possibility. And yet Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Again, the gospel requires teaching. We're born into the family of God, yes. We're born through obedience to the gospel. And then christening or sprinkling. That is not New Testament baptism. New Testament baptism is immersion. 
It is a burial in water, Colossians 2.12. So, and then one other thought here. The administrator in baptism is not important. Do you remember when Paul was in Corinth? And he said, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Why? Because they were cultivating followings. And the idea was, okay, he baptized me, so I need to follow him. No, Paul said, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He's not minimizing baptism. All he's saying is that the administrator is inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. That's not the point. The subject of baptism, that's the important point. Now, having said that, these guys, Paul and Silas, they have the opportunity to share the gospel with this man and his household. So what do you have? You have, you have an inquiry. You have instruction. Let me just back up here and point this out as well. Salvation is located where? It's in Christ, isn't it? That's what Paul said, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, that those who are saved are in Christ. And don't you think if the Apostle Paul and Silas, if they were teaching and preaching about the man, his message, don't you think that they would also include the plan? Okay, here's what you need to do to become a child of God. Jesus died, shed His blood, and bought the church. Acts 20, verse 28. And those who are saved are in Christ, and they're in the church of Christ. That is, they're in the church that was bought and paid for by the Lord. So now note what the record says. Look at verse 33. Luke said, He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately, he and all his family were baptized. So let me just ask this question. Why were they baptized? Why were they immersed in water? Because if they were going to appropriate God's grace... God's grace has been manifested to the world. Titus 2, verse 11, The grace of God's appeared, bringing salvation to every man. We know that grace is a key in the redemptive plan. But Paul said grace is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Salvation in Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. The only way to get into Christ and to appropriate the benefits and blessings of the blood of Jesus is by being immersed in water, buried in water. When we die to the love and the practice of sin, when we come up out of that water, we rise to walk in newness of life, as Paul said, Romans chapter 6. So this man and his family, they had to be taught. They had to come to the conviction that Jesus is the Son of God. And then based upon that conviction, they responded with an obedient faith. That's how people become Christians today. We become a child of God the exact same way. Right? I mean, isn't that what the Bible teaches? Sure it does. And then not only were they in Christ, but they were in the church of Christ. You see, when you become a child of God... You are forgiven of sin and become a part of the body of Christ. When does that occur at the same time? It is simultaneous. You're in Christ, you're in the church of Christ, and listen, 
Only those in the church are promised hope of salvation, right? Again, remember what Paul said, Ephesians 5, verse 23, Christ is the Savior of the body. Now somebody might ask, well, how many bodies are there? I mean, there are a lot of different churches out here in the world, a lot of different religious bodies. They teach a lot of different things. They wear different names. I mean, how do I know? You've got to go back and look at what the source says, don't you? You've got to make sure that what you believe and practice is found in this book. Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So when, when we do what they did, we become what they were. What were they? Members of the body of Christ. Members of the church. They were saved in Christ. They were saved in the church that Jesus bought and purchased with His blood. And so the beauty of that is these men enjoyed all the spiritual blessings that are found in Scripture. Now look at verse 34. The Bible says, When He had brought them into His house, He set food before them. And He rejoiced, having believed in God with all His household. The word believed here is a generic term. It encompasses far more than just mentally believing in God. But rather, it carries with it the idea of an obedient faith. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Acts 5, verse 14. When Luke said, And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Okay, who were the believers? Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Well, how then were they added to the Lord? Remember what the Bible says in Acts chapter 2? They repented of sin. They were baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins. The blood washed their sins away. Verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. So when you obey the gospel of Christ, you are forgiven of sins. Your sins are washed away and you become a part of God's family. You're in the church. And those in the church have the assurance of the hope of heaven. So belief is far more than just believing in God. But rather it carries with it the idea of being obedient to the faith. Obeying the gospel as we would say. Now let me ask you this question. Are you in Christ today? Have you obeyed the gospel? That is, have you obeyed the message that has been recorded in this book by holy men of God? If you haven't been baptized into Christ, could I appeal to you today to read, to study, to check out what you hear with what this book says? And if you haven't been baptized into Christ, I urge you, do that today. Leave here a child of God, enjoying all spiritual blessings. You can leave here knowing that you have been placed in the body that God has promised to save. Listen, your name is written in the book of life once you obey the gospel. And the assurance is, if you're faithful to God, when the Lord Jesus comes, He'll say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. In other words, you have the Stephanos, the victor's crown awaiting you. Now, if you're here today, let's say you are a child of God, but your life's not what it ought to be. You haven't been faithful. And you want to request the prayers of the church on your behalf. We'd be happy to pray with you. And the assurance is that God will abundantly pardon. 
all those sins, that wayward life outside of Christ, oh, those things can be forgiven. John said if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you come as we stand and sing?